this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, thank you all. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. And if you are new today, we have been in the midst of a series called Anticipation. It's been a six-week series. And what we've done is look at the book of Genesis through six of the primary characters in the book. And we're talking about how each of these lives really anticipated the coming of Christ. And so today we're talking about Joseph's story. Joseph's story is really, it's one of my personal favorites, and it's one of the most encouraging in the Bible. We all go through trials in life, and when we do, we need to know that God loves us, and we need to know that God is in control of what is going on. Even when circumstances seem to be spinning out of control, we need to know that God loves us, and that God is very much in control, and that God is going to take circumstances that are not good, and even in those very things, work for good. Nowhere do we see that clearer than through Joseph's story. Let's look at it this morning. And it really begins in Genesis chapter 37, which is where we're going to begin today. But before that, let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would work in our lives today. Each of us is going through different things in our lives. If we're not going through a trial right now, we will. It's just the nature of life in a fallen world. And when we go through things like that, we need to know that you love us. And we need to know that you're in control, that you reign, that you are sovereign over what is happening. And that you're going to take every circumstance in life and use it for our good and for your glory. And so, Lord, speak to us today. You know our needs. Encourage our hearts. Touch us today where we need to be touched. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The great church historian Mark Knoll has written a book called Turning Points. It's about certain times in the history of Christianity when the hinge of events, the the hinge of history swung in a decisive way turning points. You can look back over the history of your own life and see turning points in your life. My greatest turning point was at the age of 17 when God awakened my heart to commit my life to Christ in a decisive way. That was a life-changing turning point for me, a wonderful turning point. The age of 17 was a turning point in Joseph's life as well. But what happened to him at 17 was not so wonderful, but God took that and used it for something that was more than wonderful. We begin the story of Joseph's life when he was 17 years old, when he was sold into slavery by his own brothers. And that story begins in chapter 37 of Genesis. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Israel was another name for Jacob. We looked at last week. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. 
and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, isn't it interesting how we keep seeing in these families in Genesis the sins of the parents really passed on to their children. These, these family patterns, dysfunctional patterns that keep cropping up in the next generation. Last week, we saw that in, Jake, in the family that Jacob had grown up in, that his mother favored him and that his father favored his brother and that produced all kinds of conflict between the brothers. And now here is Jacob and he's repeating that mistake. He favors Joseph over all of his other sons. And this creates all kinds of conflict. And it's a real message for those of us who are parents. If we grew up in a home where there were unhealthy patterns, let's say we grew up in a home where there was a lot of anger, for instance, or where conflict was just not worked out in a healthy kind of a way, or where there was favoritism like here, or any sort of unhealthy pattern in the way that we related to one another as, as a family, if you grew up in, in, a, in a home where there were any, any pattern like that, then listen, I would just encourage you, be aware of that and don't pass it on. A lot of things we need to pass on, okay? But don't pass that one on. Break the cycle. Break the cycle. Well, Jacob does not do that. He sees favoritism in the home that he grows up in, and then he favors Joseph above all of his other brothers. This creates all kinds of conflict. Jacob is not doing Joseph any favors <laughs> in showing favoritism toward him. Because it creates conflict, it says in verse 4 that his brothers could not speak peacefully to him. Literally in Hebrew it says they didn't want to speak to him at all. And the conflict gets even worse when Joseph tells his brothers about a dream that he has. Verse chapter 37 continues. Now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Now, he might not be showing the greatest relational intelligence by relaying this dream to his brothers, but he's, he's, he's a teenager at this point. He's, probably, he's maybe not even 17 at this point, maybe a younger teenager. And so he's probably somewhat still naive at this point, and he tells his brothers what he's dreamed. He says, Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaves. So it was not very flattering to them. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So you've got rage that's building in the heart of these brothers. They see Joseph wearing this coat of many colors. Every time they see him wearing this coat... It reminds them that they are less loved by their dad than him. And then he tells them this dream of them bowing down to, before him. And so fury, really, is building within their hearts. And this all comes to a head 
when one day they're out tending the flock and they're some distance from home, and Jacob sends Joseph to go and check on them. So Jacob says to Joseph, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now here you see a theme that emerges again and again in Joseph's life, and that is the providence of God. God just working in circumstances. I mean, Joseph just happens to come across this man who just happens to have heard exactly where his brothers are going. So you can see God is pulling the strings here. Uh, God is setting all of this up, and ultimately God's going to do something beautiful out of it. But right now things are about to get really ugly because what happens? His brothers look up, they see Joseph coming, they saw him from afar, and before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Archaeologists have found lots of cisterns in this particular area, they're bottlenecked. Sometimes they had water in them, in this case the cistern was dry, and so basically they're going to throw him into this empty cistern where they suspect he's just going to die, either of dehydration or starvation. Then we'll say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. They took particular, particular relish in stripping this robe of favoritism off of him. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. Wow. What a chilling statement that is. They throw their own brother into this pit where he's going to die from not being able to eat. And they sit down on the outside and have a meal. Just chilling. But God is is at work. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's at least make some money off of him. So he says to the others, come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother our own flesh. Now, apparently the irony of this last statement is lost on Judah. He is our brother. Let's just sell him as a slave. And so they do that. And verse 28 says the Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. And the Hebrew Literally, it just the the drama here is just and the and the horror of what has happened. Literally, it says that they drew Joseph, sold Joseph, took Joseph. I mean, this is awful. You see a foreshadowing here of what's going to happen to Jacob's descendant, the Lord Jesus. 
Because Jesus is going to be sold out for shekels of silver as well. Sold out by one that he had treated like a brother, by Judas, who, he had, who had been with him as, as one of the twelve, and who betrayed him. And Joseph here becomes the victim of betrayal. But as God was going to do through the life of Jesus, God's going to take this horrible thing and do something wonderful out of it. But the story continues in Egypt. Next thing that we see is that Joseph is falsely accused and thrown into prison. So what happens? Chapter 39, the story continues. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had brought him, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down from there. So Joseph is taken down to Egypt by these traitors. He's sold as a slave, but the man who buys him just happens to be a member of Pharaoh's royal court, the captain of the guard, Potiphar. And it says the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. Joseph had been given an incredible gift of administration by God. But whatever Joseph is tasked with overseeing, things just go well. And so Potiphar sees that. And so Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. And so Joseph rises to the position of overseer in the house of Potiphar, God is looking out for him. God just blesses whatever he touches. Things are going well after this tragedy that has occurred, but trouble is lurking. Or maybe we should say trouble is stalking because Potiphar's wife is, she's a stalker. (laughs) What happens here? Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. And said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater than me in this house, in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, we really see Joseph's character coming out here. Because Joseph sees right to the heart of what adultery is and what really all sin is. Joseph sees that if he were to do this, not only would it be a wretched violation of Potiphar's trust, a a violation of of him as a person, but more than that, it would be a sin against God. Above all, sin is against 
God. When we sin against another person, ultimately we're sinning against God. David sees this in Psalm 51, 4. He says there in his psalm of confession, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, surely Joseph knows that if he continues to refuse her sexual advances, that she's in the position to do him a lot of harm. But you see, Joseph is far more concerned, far more concerned with sinning against God. He fears sinning against God far more than he fears anything that this woman can possibly do to him. And so, what happens? What happens is that she continues to make advances until the point that one day Joseph is in the house and she physically grabs him to pull him toward her and he breaks away from her and as he does so, he leaves his robe in her hands and she is so livid at his refusal to sleep with her that she begins to cry out and cry out to all the people that are in the house that this Hebrew has attempted to sexually assault her with the result that Joseph winds up in prison. So now, in addition to being sold as a slave by his own brothers at the age of 17, he's been falsely accused of, uh, of sexual assault. And so now he, he's thrown into prison. But once again, we see the hand of God at work in his life. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. You know, when he was younger, Joseph wore this coat of many colors as a sign of honor. But as he goes along, he learns that that ultimately, real honor is something that you don't get from a coat. It's something that God gives. Joseph learned the truth of Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Joseph Joseph continues to walk with God through it all. He continues to trust God through it all. And God continues to be at work in remarkable ways in his life. Now, we see the hand of God just at work and his providence at work here as well. Because in this prison where he's placed... Joseph, again, just happens to be put in proximity to two individuals who were close to the Pharaoh, the supreme leader of the nation of Egypt, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. These were no menial positions in Pharaoh's court because when monarchs were assassinated in ancient times, a lot of times it was by being poisoned. So the chief cupbearer and the chief baker were crucial positions. But for some reason, Pharaoh was angry with these two individuals, has them thrown into prison, and they meet Joseph there. 
And one night, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker have dreams, which they tell to Joseph. The chief cupbearer dreams that three branches are coming out, and he takes grapes off the three branches, squeezes them into Pharaoh's cup, and presents the cup to Pharaoh. That's his dream. The chief baker dreams of three baskets on top of his head, and the birds are eating out of the top basket. So they come to Joseph, and they tell him about these dreams that they've had. And Joseph says, well, you know what? I can't do anything to interpret them, but I happen to know a God who can give you the answer. And so God gives to Joseph the interpretation of what these two dreams are all about, what's bad news for the chief baker, what it means is that in three days he was going to be executed, but for the chief cupbearer it was good news. It meant that within three days he was going to be restored to his position at Pharaoh's right hand. And before he leaves the prison, Joseph says to the chief chief cupbearer, look, remember me to Pharaoh. I'm here in this prison. I've been falsely accused and mention me to Pharaoh when you're released. But what happens? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Now this was one of the, had to be one of the cruelest blows, right? I mean, here he is. He's been through all of this. All, he's sold as a slave, falsely accused. He's been suffering in this prison. And the one human being, that was in the position to help him at this point, the chief cupbearer forgets him. But God hasn't forgotten him. God hasn't forgotten Joseph, and God hasn't forgotten you. In the times in your life when you feel your loneliness, when you feel all alone, utterly forsaken, know this. If you know God, you know one who has not forgotten you. He has all power and authority in heaven and on earth. And if you are his child through Christ, his hand is on you and he loves you. He hasn't forgotten you. And he's at work. He's at work for good. God has not forgotten Joseph. But years go by. A couple of years go by. And now Pharaoh has dreams. The leader of Egypt. He has a dream of seven cows coming out of the Nile River. Seven healthy cows. And then seven unhealthy cows come out of the Nile, and they devour the seven healthy cows. And then he has a dream the same night about seven stalks of healthy wheat that are consumed by seven stalks of unhealthy wheat. And Pharaoh wakes up, and he's troubled by his dreams, And he tells one of his attendants, who happens to be the chief cupbearer. He says, look, I've had this dream. You know, I don't don't know what it means. And the chief cupbearer goes, oops. You remember when you threw me into prison that time? Well, in prison, there was this Hebrew, and I had a dream, and he told me what my dream was all about. So they go and they grab Joseph out of the prison and bring him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh says, hey, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And Joseph says, well, no, actually, I can't do that. But the God that I serve can give you the answer. And so God gives to Joseph the meaning of Pharaoh's dream, 
which was this. It meant that there were going to be seven good years followed by seven years of famine. And so Joseph not only told him the meaning of the dream, but told him what needed to be done. Joseph, with his administrative gifts and abilities, knew what had to happen. He knew that there had to be some system of storing this grain during the good years and so forth. And so he makes this recommendation to Pharaoh. He says, look, you need to appoint somebody of wisdom to administrate all this program of storage and so forth. And so Pharaoh listens to it and he says, I think I know the man. (laughs) That was Joseph. So Joseph goes from the prison to being now the, not just the, not the administrator of the prison anymore. (laughs) Now that he's the administrator of the land of Egypt. Well, famine does indeed come. It comes and it comes not only to Egypt, but it comes to Canaan as well, where a man named Jacob happens to live with all of his sons except for one who went missing years before. That would be Joseph. So what happens here? We come to the recognition of his brothers. Famine comes to Canaan. Jacob says to his sons, look, If we don't do something, we're all going to die. I want you all to go down to Egypt. I've heard there's grain there. So he sends the brothers, with the exception of Benjamin, down to Egypt to buy grain. And they appear before the chief administrator of the land of Egypt, who happens to be their long-lost brother. But they don't recognize him. It's been years. Joseph is approaching middle age By this point, he was just 17 the last time they saw him. He's probably wearing Egyptian clothing and so forth. And besides, they assume he's dead. So they don't recognize him, but he certainly recognizes them. We pick it up in chapter 42. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers But they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Now, you can draw draw an arch all the way from chapter 37 when Joseph has his original dream of them bowing down. Draw an arch from chapter 37 all the way to here. It all comes together at this point. The question is, what is... Joseph going to going to do about this. He recognizes them. What's he what's he going to do at this point? It is within his power to just speak one word. I mean one word from Joseph's lips and they can all be executed. They sold him as a slave, would have killed him, decided to make money off of him and sold him as a slave. He's been stripped of all of his young adulthood. It was all lost because of the action of his brothers. Slavery, prison, all of that, it came from this evil action of his brothers. Joseph could have spoken a word and had them executed immediately. But he doesn't do it. Not only does he not do it, but as we're going to see, Joseph has forgiven his brothers. He's forgiven them. He has absolutely no ill will. He he is completely free of 
all bitterness toward them? The question is why? How? How, after everything that had been done to him, how was Joseph able to live without bitterness? How was Joseph able to forgive them? When we go through something, when we've been treated unjustly, or when we've been greatly sinned against, or just when some circumstance of life has just gone horribly against us, how do we avoid bitterness? How do we avoid unforgiveness? How do we avoid just becoming completely cynical about life? This is where theology matters. What we think about God in times like that matters. And what we're going to see is that what enabled Joseph to be free of all bitterness and recrimination, what enabled him to forgive his brothers, was what he thought about God, his theology. Because Joseph knew that the bottom line was that God loved him and that God was in control of his life, that God was sovereign. See, Joseph not only recognizes his brothers, but Joseph recognizes God's love and sovereignty. That's what we see here. So, what happens? In chapter 42 through 44, which I encourage you to read on your own, we don't have time to deal with it this morning, Joseph kind of puts his brothers through a series of tests. He's, he wants to see if they've changed. He's already forgiven them. But he wants to see what they're like now. Are they aware of the enormity of what they've done and, and so forth? And so he, in chapters 42 through 44, he puts them through sort of a series of tests. And as it turns out, they have changed. They, they're really racked with guilt because of what they have done. And Joseph, for a long time, doesn't reveal himself to them. He just kind of wants to see what they have become like, and he, sees they, they, he hears them talking among themselves. They feel awful about what they've done uh, to their brother and, and so forth. And the day finally comes, the dramatic moment, when Joseph reveals himself. To his brothers. And we see that in chapter 45. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. Has all the Egyptians leave, and it's just Joseph and his brothers. And what happens? And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. <laughs> you better believe they were terrified. They were, they were terrified for their lives. They knew that Joseph was in a position to kill them if he wanted to. And they deserved it after what they had done. So they were absolutely terrified they couldn't speak a word, and Joseph sees their fear. And what does he say to them? Joseph says to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. 
here we see it. This is the secret. Joseph knows that, well, yes, they did do a horrible, wicked thing. And they're accountable to God for that. But ultimately, Joseph knows that God was in control of his life. His brothers weren't the ones who were in control of his life. Even that day when the Midianite traders came by and they sold him as a slave, it was God who was in control. And it was God who sent him to Egypt. God who was at work for good. He goes on. He says, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years, in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. This is the secret. Joseph understands God's love and God's sovereignty. He understands that God has never let go of him, that God loved him the whole time, that God loved him that very day when they sold him as a slave. God's hand was on him. God's loving hand was on him. And God was in control throughout everything that has happened, slavery, prison, all of it. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. Can you look back over the story of your life and see how God has taken sometimes the most painful parts of your life, the most difficult times of your life, the times of your life when it seemed like events were, and circumstances were just spiraling out of control. Can you look back now years later and see how a loving, sovereign God was very much in control? And how God was taking those very things and using them for good? Listen, if you're going through a time like that today, and maybe at this point you can't even make sense of it, and you can know that if you are a child of God through Christ, He hasn't forgotten you. His hand is on you. And He's causing ultimately all things to work together for good. Now listen, cling to that. When you can't trust His hand, trust His heart. God is good. God loves you. And God is in control. Now get that drilled down in your life. Get that nailed down in your life. Because if you're not going through a painful trial today, you will at some point. It's just the nature of life in a broken, fallen world. And you've got to know these things right at your core. God loves me. And God is in control of my life. Other people aren't in control. Circumstances aren't in control. God is in control. Joseph knew it. It's what got him through this entire episode. Well, what happens is that you know, he's forgiven his brothers. Jacob is still alive, and so Jacob comes down. Joseph provides for them to, to live in the land of Egypt and, the, and Goshen, and they can farm there and so forth. And so Joseph's done nothing but treat them with kindness. But as we're going to see, even after years, his brothers are still carrying around a lot of baggage. 
because of their own uneasy consciences. They, they, they can't believe that Joseph would actually completely forgive them for what they've done. It's why we as human beings have such a hard time understanding God's grace. How can God offer us salvation as a free gift? Surely I've got to do something to earn it. Surely I've got to atone for my sins somehow. Well, no. Jesus atoned for us. He took our place on the cross. And salvation is now grace. We're not really wired to understand grace. Just not the way life usually works. But it's what Christianity is all about. And his brothers just can't, they can't make sense of this. And they think that after Jacob dies, Joseph is going to get his revenge. Joseph is going to kill us. So they concoct this story, and they, uh, Jacob is getting ready to die. And so his brothers send a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. They're making all this up. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Jacob wept when they spoke to him. Why is he weeping? I think he's weeping because Joseph sees that after all these years, they're still bound. They're still bound by the past. See, Joseph's free. He's free. He's free because he's completely forgiven them. There's no bitterness in his heart whatsoever. He's been, Joseph's been free for years, and they're still carrying this around. You know, there's a story about two monks who come to a stream, and there was a woman getting ready to cross the stream, and she couldn't get across. And so one of the monks helped her out, and he picked her up and carried her across the stream, put her on the other side, and they all went on. A couple of miles down the road, one of the monks said to the one who had helped out the woman, he said, you know, the vows of our order forbid us to even touch a woman, and yet you picked her up and carried her across the stream. And the monk said to him, he said, my friend, I put the woman down on the other, other side of the stream. You have continued to carry her. His brothers have continued to carry this through the years. What are you continuing to carry in your life that you don't need to be carrying? What kind of what relationships in your life are unreconciled that need to be reconciled? Is there unforgiveness in your heart toward another person? Is there bitterness in your heart toward someone because of what has happened? Let it go. Let it go. Because it's toxic. And it's eating away at you. And you're not going to be free as long as you carry this around. Joseph weeps because he sees that his brothers are still bound by all this junk in the past. What does he say to them? Joseph says to them, do not fear. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good 
to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. See, Joseph understood that when we walk with God, life has two levels. The top level is the level that we can see. And the level that we can see, if we just walk by sight, a lot of times the circumstances that we see are, they're not good. They're foreboding. They can cause all kinds of anxiety and fear and so forth. There's a level that we can see around us. But what we need to know is that there's another level. There's a bottom level. There's a bottom line. And the bottom line for us as Christians is that beneath it all, there is a loving, sovereign God who is working all things together for our good and for God's glory. And we can know that. That's what Joseph knew. That's why he doesn't become bitter. That's why he can not only forgive them, but treat them with positive kindness. Is because he understands who God is. And that God was at work for all along. Yes, they meant it for evil. But that wasn't the bottom line. The bottom line is that God was at work and that God meant it for good. For the saving of many lives. What's the ultimate example of that? It's the cross, right? What could be more horrible than the murder of the Son of God? Listen, if you were just to go by the top line of what you could see with your eye that day in Jerusalem, there was an innocent man falsely accused, nailed to a cross. But something was going on that people couldn't see with the naked eye. There was God bringing about, purchasing our redemption through that cross. And so the horrible cross became through the providential hand of God, the wonderful cross that we sing about. Let's pray together. Romans 8.28 says, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. That's really the issue today. Are you called according to His purpose? Do you love God? Have you entered into a personal relationship with God through His Son? We come to know the Father through His Son. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. Have you turned to Jesus and placed your trust in Him and given your life to Him in a definitive kind of way? Have you experienced that kind of turning point in your life? Turn to the Savior today. Trust Him. Give your life to Him. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of decision. And if you're here today and you say, I want to know Christ We want to invite you to come. I'm going to be right here at the front. Other pastors will be here. Just slip out from where you are. And we want to come alongside and pray with you and help you begin in your relationship with the Lord. 
Maybe you're here today and you'd say, I want to be a part of this church family. We want to invite you to come today. If there's a need in your life for prayer, you come. Come pray with someone here. Come pray at the altar. It's open for you. So, Father, we give you now this time of decision. Lord, work now in the hearts of those that need to publicly commit their lives to you and the hearts of those that need to be a part of this church family and obey your leadership in that area. Work now for your glory's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.